This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. It's Veterans Day and we're taking a closer look at one aspect of how veterans transition to life outside the military by attending college. This week the Memory Mall at the University of Central Florida is dotted with flags, 1,400 of them. They represent the students attending the university who are veterans. It's a lot more students than when UCF's Veterans Academic Resource Centre was established more than a decade ago. It's the main processing centre for GI Bill benefits. It offers academic and career counselling and mentoring for students and education and training for university faculty and staff. Well, Joshua J.J. Johnson is a student resource specialist at the Veteran Academic Resource Centre. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Well, tell us a little bit about what the centre offers to students who are veterans. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how UCF came to put it together. Like, when did they realise they needed something to help out students who are veterans? Well, the Veterans Academic Resource Center was established on Veterans Day 2010. And it was basically because there was changes in the educational GI Bill benefits. And Mm -hmm. we, as a nation, were going to see a lot more veterans going back to school. And so at that time, it was a brainchild of Mr. Jim Middlecoff, who was a Navy veteran, who was at the time the assistant registrar for the University of Central Florida. And between him and his boss, Dr. Paul Vio, decided that there needed to be a center or a place for all of our student veterans to come to have a centralized location, to have their um, GI Bill benefits process, to engage with other student veterans, to have that advocate that that they need offer career and academic advising. Mm -hmm. So have that one central location where our student veterans can all come because we were going to see an increase. Mm -hmm. I believe at that time there was roughly about – Maybe six, seven hundred at that time, and uh, um, you've got about double that now, right? Yeah, we have roughly about fourteen hundred plus student veterans, and about a thousand dependents that we work with that use VA educational benefits, mm-hmm. which is about sixty-seven percent, seventy percent of the student veteran and dependent population that we serve at mm-hmm. the university. So you're serving about twenty-four hundred students. Yeah, on any given semester, about 2,400 students and about roughly 1,700 of those students are using VA educational benefits. Mm -hmm. Others may be using some sort of financial aid or some scholarships or what what other um, avenue or paying for it for themselves. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the unique needs veterans have that may be a bit different from your run-of-the-mill student? Um, Typically, our student veterans are seen as non-traditional students. They're older, typically, Mm -hmm. in age. And so what we find, again, I come from the experience of being an Air Force dependent. Mm -hmm. Uh, My dad served 20 years in the Air Force. And so that's from my experience as an outside looking in perspective. And with having roughly about seven to eight years of experience working at the Veterans Academic Resource Center. But having some of the unique needs is having that centralized one point of contact when they have certain challenges and have certain needs that they need to be addressed because the university is so large and different offices make only take care of part of the issues that they that they need. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, many times I've heard from our um, student veterans that before they got here, they were having the sense of whether they were going to feel welcomed or not. And so by having the having that kind of sense, we kind of ease that because we have our separate orientation for our, our student veterans mm-hmm. to come in to learn about the center, the staffing and the programs and meet other um, student veterans as well. And so in addition to that, the transition life 
for our student veterans Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of coming from that structured military lifestyle to what this higher ed kind of loosely structured type of life, you know, taking classes two, three days a week, Mm -hmm. um, engaging with student activities whenever. And so having those transitions, although primarily many of our student veterans that we engage with and we work with are transfer students that come from either a two-year or four-year smaller institution. And having that kind of transition from a smaller institution to a larger institution, as UCF is, can be challenging at times. What about things that that may be very specific to a particular veteran's life experience? Like, for example, somebody who's seen combat, they may be having PTSD or something like that. Is, Is that something that you can help kind of steer them towards the resources they may need? We don't have specific counselors that deal with with that, but we do have resources that we can connect our student veterans to, whether it's mm-hmm. with our UCF Counseling and Psychological Services. One campus resource that is phenomenal and is nationally known, UCF Restores. Sure, yeah. um, we collaborate with them at times. And then also we work with the community as well. Mm-hmm. The VA has some, some great resources. The Vet Center that's located in Orlando off of Semarang Boulevard, we collaborate with them. So there's various resources that we can connect our student veterans to when they're having challenges that relate to mental health. And as part of uh, the Veteran Academic Resource Center, Joshua, you you also have um, peer mentors. Talk a little bit about the work they do and how you select them and what kind of connection they have with students. So we have actually two different types of positions for our student veterans who are using GI Bill benefits. And Mm -hmm. I'll speak about the peer mentoring program first. The peer mentoring program is designed peer-to-peer. They're all student veterans, except for one I have as a dependent, but most of our peer mentors are student veterans themselves using GI Bill benefits. And their primary role is to be sort of that that peer advisor. They do outreach, help with any issues and challenges that our student veterans may have, connect them to resources. Um, They also assist in terms of assisting with programming. There's many different types of programs that we offer. You know, with November being Veterans Month, we Mm -hmm. currently have about 1,400 flags out, so they assist with that. They also assist with tabling to get the word out that the VARC is here for our students, and not just for our students, but faculty and staff as Mm -hmm. well. Um, So they they do a lot of programming, outreach. They act as a resource. And again, we have an academic slash career counselor. But when we have that position overwhelmed with students coming in, they also assist with peer advising. Not so much to help them schedule their classes, but talk about how their GI Bill benefits or how, as a veteran, to maneuver those programs and to make sure that they're on track and also help decipher what the academic advisor in their college and or major has said. Mm -hmm. You said there's another component too, so talk a little bit about that if you could. Right. And so we also have another position for our student veterans who want to work for for the VARC. Uh, we have where the VA workspace students who are our customer service agents. So they sit at the front desk, they answer our phones, they interact with our community, whether it's parents, students, or the outside folks to answer those quick and general questions on where an office is located, or I just got this from the VA, what does this mean? And so those are our boots on the ground, so to speak, and they typically are very well versed in GI Bill or VA educational benefits 
campus. They're well-versed with the, the offices at the university as well. So there's two different p- positions. As I said, we have the VA workstay students that we call VAS, mm-hmm. and then we have our peer mentors. And our peer mentors gauge more on the programming and academic side of the house. And so we ask that they have a higher GPA requirement and that they're not a first-semester student, where right. our, our VA workstay students can be a first-semester student. And these are, again, veterans and dependents who are using GI Bill benefits. I wonder if you could share a success story from your work at the Veteran Academic Resource Center. We have a lot. We've been <laughs> <laughs> well, you've had a lot of students go yes, through there, have, right? We have. We've had a lot of students go through there, and you know, since we've been open since November 2010. We've had many success stories with our student veterans and dependents. And so to kind of pick one is kind of hard to do. Mm -hmm. But there are times when, you know, former staff who I still keep in contact with and current staff and myself will have a student uh, come up to us who either is about to graduate or got that first job and said to us, without the the VARC there, without me being able to come to the VARC to study mm-hmm. or to have that advocate when I wasn't doing well or to offer me a, a job as a work study or a peer mentor, I would not have been able to graduate. I would not have known where to go to get things done. So, I mean, there's various stories that I could pinpoint and talk about, and I think a success story for the VARC overall is the fact that we're still here 11 years later, mm-hmm. and the student population has grown, and so the need for, needs for our student veterans have grown, and so being able to expand our reach, not with just the university and connecting with other university departments and within the other colleges within the university, but also to connect with the Central Florida and Orlando Veteran Service Organizations. We mm-hmm. work very closely with our county and city mayor's advisory board for veterans. We work with Camaraderie Foundation that offers mental health counseling. Mm-hmm. We work with um, Team Red, White, and Blue, Mission Continues, that looks to continue on service, not only to the city, but to the, to the county and the surrounding areas. So I think to look back at the 10 to 11 years that we've been in existence, the success story itself is the amount of students, veterans, and dependents that we've helped to graduate, which our retention and persistent rates are typically higher mm-hmm. than our non-traditional students overall, and also the outreach that we've done and the, the footprint that we've developed at the VARC. Our listeners will be hearing this interview on Veterans Day, so what is the uh, Academic Resource Centre doing for Veterans Day specifically? Currently, we are supporting other organizations that may be doing Veterans Day events. Currently, we have a small but very mighty staff. It's myself and um, Mr. Matt Winstall. He's our lead school certifying official and very well connected with the with the Central Florida veteran community as well. So mm-hmm. we're going to be supporting those organizations and supporting those events that are happening on Veterans Day since the university will be closed. You did mention the, the flags too yes. throughout the campus. Right. So November is typically known as Veterans Month. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we collaborate with many different different offices that are on campus that focus on veterans. So what we did for this week to kind of really kick off Veterans Month on Monday, we planted about 1,400 American flags on Memory Mall to signify one flag per student veteran that is attending for the fall semester. 
On Tuesday, we had a commemoration ceremony to honor our veterans, and that was a collaborative effort between the Veterans Academic Resource Center, the Community Veterans History Project, and also UCF student government. So Mm -hmm. those flags will be up, and they will be up through Friday morning, and then we'll have to take those down due to another event that's coming on. And also give a shout out to UCF Army and Air Force ROTC because they assisted with with bringing the flags. And throughout the month, we have various programs that happen. Next Monday, we're going to be inviting our community members from various veteran service organizations to kind of meet and greet our administrators so they can talk about the needs of the veterans within the community and how the VARC has assisted with meeting those needs and how the VARC can continue to meet those needs of the community as well. And then all for those that are listening, on, on Veterans Day, approximately at 2.11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, there was a bill called the Veterans Day Act, I believe. And at 2.11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, mm-hmm. it calls for two minutes of silence. So I urge listeners on Veterans Day at 2.11 p.m. to stop what you're doing, sit and reflect on the sacrifice that our veterans made for our country. Well, Joshua J.J. Johnson, Student Resource Specialist at the Veterans Academic Resource Center at the University of Central Florida, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Up next on Intersection, the restaurant industry is at what could be a turning point. It's facing staff shortages and a reckoning over pay and conditions. The reasons as to why there's such a smaller uh, pool of candidates has has been well documented. The lack of pay and the lack of benefits, there's no paid time off. But I think more than that, the the industry has a sort of a tarnished reputation. We'll dig into what that means for hospitality and for Central Florida after the break. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Central Florida's economy was hit hard by the pandemic and the recession that followed. But as the economy has begun to recover, restaurants are struggling to hire. To find out more about what that means for the industry and for Central Florida, where tourism and hospitality is such a vital part of the economy, I talked to a panel of experts from the world of food and hospitality. They say this could be a watershed moment for the industry. I'm joined by Dr. Robertico Kroos, Professor of Tourism Economics at Rosen College of Hospitality Management. Uh, Dr. Kroos, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Also joining us, Fires Cara, Orlando Weekly Restaurant Critic. Fires, thank you as well. Great to be here, Matt. Carol Holiday, operating partner at the Pinery Orlando. Carol, thank you too. Thank you very much for having me. And Aaron Lamott, Vice President of Supply Management for North America Food at Sodexo. Aaron, thank you as well. Pleasure to be here today. Well, the so-called great resignation with employees changing or quitting their jobs in the wake of the pandemic has affected many industries, but in particular hospitality. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, for example, In August, some 892,000 hospitality employees quit their job, which is double the national rate. So what does this look like for restaurants and what does it mean for employees, employers and customers? Carol, I want to start with you. You opened your restaurant, The Pinery, fairly recently, right? What's that been like? Yes, sir. We opened um, June 21st. Um, You know, it actually hasn't been as bad as I thought it was going to be, but I give a lot of credit to our corporate culture and um, and our guiding principles that we have that guide our, our, our business and the way that we do things, the way that we treat people. Um, but it, it's been a little spotty getting people in the back of the house, I think more so than the front of the house for me. Opening in June with stories about the worker shortage, 
was there a bit of trepidation and have you seen some of that sort of come through in terms of trying to hire people? Sure. Um, you know, I've been in this business a while and I know a lot of people. Um, I go back to a good friend of mine who has never worked for me. Her husband has. And I really wanted her to come and work with me. Um, and she told me no. She flat out told me no. And the reason being is because she, you know, when, when this pandemic hit, her, her whole livelihood was taken away from her in the blink of an eye. And so what she did, um, like a lot of people in the restaurant industry, she went out and reinvented herself. She, re- she went out and got a career and started working for Target, actually. Um, she just, she said, never again, Carol, I'm never going to do that again. There's no emphasis on financial planning. There's no emphasis on healthcare and benefits and retirement and now I'm with the company. Yeah, I'm not making as much money as I was, but I, I have longevity and I have a plan. And they put these things in place for me. And I, I can't fault her for that. I, you know, I can't say you're wrong because she's not wrong. And you've hit on some things that I think uh, Fires wrote about in his story for the Orlando Weekly uh, title. Orlando's restaurants have faced unthinkable setbacks and epic labor shortage may be the one that reforges the industry. Uh, Fires, what are you hearing from restaurateurs and from people uh, on the on the floor about the epic labor shortage? Yeah, well, it's uh, you know, it seems to be affecting pretty much everyone in the industry. Uh, and I think I think the the reasons as to why there's such a smaller uh, pool of candidates has has been well documented. Uh, Carol alluded to some, you know, the lack of pay and the lack of benefits. There's no paid time off, but I think um, more than that, the you know the industry has a sort of a tarnished reputation, and uh, you know I think it has the highest rates of sexual harassment in any in other industry. That's that's something I heard on NPR actually last week. I think even more so than the military. There's a high level of physical and and mental abuse you know there's there's cooks that are on their feet for you know 15 hours uh servers have to tolerate some atrocious behavior uh from from customers and that may have even increased in this in this pandemic era with with masks and 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 people having issue with that so um yeah they're they're all they're all feeling it but i think a lot of people that are currently working in the industry are saying, you know, enough of this, you know, uh, that's why people, as Carol mentioned, are, um, reinventing themselves. So many people took the pandemic as a, uh, as an opportunity to sort of, um, yeah, reevaluate their lives. And some went back to school to take a potentially different career path. Why, whereas others, you know, went to work for companies like Target or Walmart or UPS or, or, or Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and reinvention and kind of reassessment. I mean, that's been a theme across uh, the entire economy, not just the hospitality industry. But um, Professor Crows, you helped author a study of some 1,000 hospitality workers and found that about 30% of them had quit the industry altogether or were looking for other opportunities. That's a pretty high percentage. So what what did you find? Why was that? What were they saying? Well, there are several reasons for that. Uh, one you can read through the um, 
through the respondents' um, answers, actually, there were some resentment as one of the participants mentioned, you know, they felt like their whole life was kind of uh, uh, fall um, away because of the pandemic and they were just kind of disposed very, very quickly, you know, through laid offs and furloughs and nobody really thought about the consequences about their family, their livelihood and so on. So th- th- that w- that is one aspect. Then also the um, the working conditions that has been mentioned, that was another uh, major factor, uh, low wages, uh, long hours, stress, uh, uh, unruly behavior. So all these things came up at that time. But then there is an, a, another aspect which, which we found really uh, insightful and we didn't expect that, that there is also trepidation with regard to safety, you know, that um, though, especially those unvaccinated were very strong in terms of, you know, their their own safety um, and others. So that, that, that was something that was clearly came um, forward in, in, in the survey. And what happened that brings us to a major question whether the current business model in hospitality is sustainable or not. And our conclusion was that as as it is, it's not. Because if you're having such a large number who are thinking of leaving uh, the industry, and then you have another third who really didn't have a clear opinion, whether you know they agree or disagree, which is basically a wild card uh, in your in your industry, you're talking about you know some major shift that could happen, you know, in the coming. Uh, months or coming time. So we think that uh, the shortage will stay for a longer time than we anticipated. Aaron Lamotte, I wonder what is going through your mind as you as you listen in on this conversation because Sodexo supplies food for hospitals, schools, rest homes. It's kind of on the macro scale, if anything. So how is the labour shortage affecting what you do? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the, the labour shortage is not just uh, uh, an industry issue for restaurants. Uh, it's an industry issue for uh, all aspects of, of our livelihoods right now, right? Um, we see it uh, starting all the way back at the at the grower shipper level with the the food production, uh, all the way through to the manufacturing piece um, into distribution. Uh, a tremendous shortage of of drivers to to get the products from the the last uh, the point of distribution to the to the point of uh, sale. You know the 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 issues that that we're all feeling from a labor crunch are uh, dramatically affecting all aspects of everything we do. Uh, it's not just about trying to fill the positions in the front of the house to get the servers or the back of the house to get the the culinarians. Um, it, it really it, it it's ubiquitous across all aspects of our of our business right now, and and uh, it's something that it's part of what keeps us up at night. So what's the solution? Are you kind of in the position where you can say we have a bit more money we can throw at it? Or is, as we're hearing from some of the other guests on this panel, there needs to be kind of a, a reevaluation, rethinking maybe uh, a new a new look at the industry as a whole? Yeah, you know, I think I think for us, I think Carol made a point that really kind of resonated with, with kind of the, the approach that we've taken, right, which is we're really focused on trying to do what we do best. And, and we've been around since 1966. 
Um, we've had a, a lot of time to create a culture, a lot of time to try to get things right. Uh, some of those core principles that Carol talked about uh, to institute them in every aspect of what we do. Um, we've really, uh, I've been with Sodexo for 16 years and, and I would be considered a, a, one of the new kids. Um, we really pride ourselves on the longevity of our staff and, and the, the opportunity to develop careers, not necessarily just like people looking for jobs. Uh, so for us, it's, it's really kind of harkening back to the core principles of what made us who we are, uh, trying to focus on those and trying to make sure that we um, promote those core principles throughout every aspect of the job in all aspects of what we do. Robert Tico, um, coming back to your study and the percentage of hospitality workers who are saying enough and moving on to other things, that has bigger implications for an economy like Central Florida, right? Because it's so heavily dependent on hospitality. So what does it mean that you have an outsized proportion of hospitality workers saying we want something different? Is that going to have some profound impacts on Orlando? Yes, well, as, as, as uh, the previous participant mentioned, when you have a shortage like this, it will affect not only the service delivery, but also it will affect the level of satisfaction and value that the customers provide um, to their experience. So therefore, it could have some um, feedback that to the economy that these people will not come back because they are not really happy with the level of service that they, they are accustomed to or they're receiving. And um, that is one aspect. So you're losing customers. On the other hand, it will put even more um, stress on the workforce that stay, they're staying behind, you know, so with more workload, with more hours, more stress. So therefore, that is that one third that doesn't have an opinion that can have an impact on those saying, you know, as a wild card, I'm leaving also because this is too stressful. There's no solution to it. So I'm going away. But I would like to come back to the idea that perhaps um, some people has proffered that by increasing um, uh, money that would be sufficient or the salary that would be sufficient to attract um, the people back to the work. What we found that is important, but that's not enough. I mean, people are reassessing their whole life situation in terms of work-life balance, time with their family, uh, stress, uh, value, being respected, uh, uh, consider what they were doing as as valuable. So what we are seeing or what we could see in the future, what will happen that some tasks because of the level of the task will never get to the level of the amount of money that these people will need. So the business has to come up uh, with some very innovative ways of automating a certain um, task that will never be done by humans because they, they, they are beneath what they think is their value and the level of a decent work that they would like to have. That's an interesting idea. Carol, is, is automation something you think about as the owner of a restaurant? No, I don't. It's actually the last thing I think about. Um, you know, I, I think that in a world that's, that is so automated, I, I understand that as far as labor dollars go, that that's where everyone wants to go. But I, I feel that that personal touch is being lost every day. Um, being able to call up someone and get a human being on the phone is almost, I mean, it's just doesn't happen. It's, it's crazy that that's a scarce thing nowadays. 
Um, so I think that there's a lot of value in that personal touch that we're not putting in there. Um, uh, you know, as he said, I, I believe that if you respect a person and you do give them value, you let them grow from the bottom to the top, um, you're going to get somebody who's invested in what you're trying to do. And all around, it's going to be a better experience for you, for your guests, um, for the restaurant, for themselves. Um, I always want people to go on and, and be better. So that's my, my personal goal every day is to get someone who's invested and get them to go and live their best life. I don't want them to stay at the Pinery forever. But at the same time, I want to give them the foundation to, to build and to grow on that. And I don't think that automation is necessarily the answer to that. I feel like you lose that personal touch with, with on my side. You know, when I go to McDonald's, I don't want to go to a kiosk. I just, it frustrates me. <laughs> I want a person. What about the kind of bigger questions then of, you know, it's not just pay, it's also conditions, it's sort of like job satisfaction. I mean, what conversations are you having, Carol, with your peers? What what are they saying about like, you know, as far as change that needs to happen to retain staff and, as you say, uh, allow them to flourish and live their best lives in that, in that career? It's funny that, you know, I really kind of feel like I stand alone on some of these issues. Um, most of my peers are into the automation and into, okay, wait, how are we going to save on labor? And think of this, but one of the, one of the things I think that gets lost in saving on labor is retention of staff. That's a huge part of your labor dollars. Having to train new people to do new things um, is a huge part of your labor dollars. So if you hire the right people that have the right goals um, and can abide and adhere to the principles that we put forth, then I think they're going to go far. So that's, that's the conversation I have, but no one seems to be having that conversation with me. Um, and there's things that, that we do, like I told Fayez a few months ago, you know, we try to get everyone involved in the community we try to get our, all of our staff. Now we're not going to have a big kumbaya circle. Um, as much as I would love that sometimes, but it doesn't happen. But I try to get them to participate in activities that we do as a group. Um, and that puts more value and more stock in, in the Pinery and in Ivanhoe and in Orlando in general, um, the hospitality community. So those are kind of the things that I focus on in my business. And the conversations I have with my staff. Fires, uh, just thinking back to your article that you wrote, you published back in September. I mean, it sort of started. Uh, it seems like with a, a story about numbers, and then turned into something much bigger as far as kind of restaurant culture goes. Do you think this is a real moment, a real opportunity for change in the restaurant and food business, or is this just kind of a blip? And and once the economy writes itself, uh, things will go back to status quo. Well, no, I do think it is a, a watershed moment for the industry, and I, you know, it, it's it's not merely a blip because, you know, as we're seeing, workers won't return until they're being paid a livable wage and and you know given benefits and that sort of thing. But more so, they won't come back unless the culture changes. And Carol is uh, w one of the restaurateurs in town that is making an effort to 
affect positive change, not only in the kitchen, but in the front of the house. And, and we're starting to see that, you know, we're starting to see restaurateurs, even small independent ones like uh, Black Rooster Taqueria, for example, they're, they're giving uh, health benefits and a full 401k uh, package to their employees. And, you know, and they're making the economics work. And if they can do it, other uh, other independent restaurants can look at the numbers and work out some sort of uh, uh, revenue model that that works for them. So, uh, you know, I, I I definitely think think that it's it, it has to change. It, it's not merely like you know it will. It just has to. Aaron, for Sodexo and and for other um, companies that are kind of bigger scale. What do you think about some of the lasting changes you're going to see to the workforce and to how things are done, you know, sort of stemming from the pandemic? Like what what's, comes to mind first? Well, you know, I, I think it's, um, uh, as it's been spoken to quite a bit so far today, I think a lot of it starts with how you treat people. I think it's how you, um, how you grow your team, how you create a culture of team and, and, a, and a sense of belonging to something. I, I think that there's there's a balance, right? I, I, I agree with Carol. I think that the idea of, of these fully automated, you know, restaurants and experiences are, are probably not where we're headed, uh, but there's certainly a, a balance to be had between uh, some level of automation, some level of technology, um, and, and, and the ability to, to put people in front of other people, right? Uh, that, that human touch, that uh, you, you mentioned we, we serve as hospitals, as an example. Uh, so much of what we do is about patient recovery. You know, the, the nutrition and the food that, that patients eat is as much often about their recovery as, as the reason that they're uh, ultimately there and, and has a lot to do with readmittance rates. So, and, and you can't do that with a, with a machine. You can't do that with, a, uh, with an automated uh, level of activity. So, it's disconcerting to hear that that so much of the industry is is experiencing things that I, I I honestly would hope were from a day far gone. But the idea that it's going to get better and that things are are improving and that people are are uh, interested in making things better that's that's incredibly important to us. And those are the kind of people that we're trying to attract. Robert Tico, are you planning to go back and rerun the survey at a certain point in the future just to sort of see how the trends are looking? you know, once the economy is in a slightly different position or, or is this a, a one and done sort of thing? Oh, yes, certainly we would like to do that. Um, I would like to say one thing, though, which is very important. The hospitality industry had the highest return of the turnover rate, you know, pre-pandemic. So it shouldn't be what the pandemic did is just put it for everybody to see and ex- accelerate, make, make it even worse. But it had, it had the highest. So these problems are coming from a long, long time before. And so when you hear those unemployed and about uh, almost 6% of our respondents were unemployed, which is higher than the national uh, um, rate of 4.2 or 4.4. And when 60% are telling you that they're not coming back because they felt that they are, were not treated well as human beings and the the work conditions were not good and then you look at those working in the industry who are thinking of leaving the industry who are in their majority white women high school and and have um um, earning less than twenty five thousand dollars 
It, it has to do with a business model that really is not sustainable. And that is our message. And whatever you want to do, if you don't take care and really revisit that business model, you know, you will not make it in the future. And that is the message that we're getting. And, and, and so therefore the, sh the shortage will not go away. We will do it again, but within that group, we, we saw also that a large part of those who are thinking of leaving the industry is also those unvaccinated people. So um, right now we just started another survey in order to try to understand why there is vaccine hesitancy among hospitality workers and see why it is. And, and so that is also a very important aspect of this whole shortage that are um, evolving right now. Uh, Carol, I, I kind of want to give you the last word here. What does the next little year look like for you at the Pioneer? I'm wondering if there's still sort of like a lot of uncertainty uh, that you're seeing in the restaurant business at large. Sure, sure. Of course there is. Um, you know, from food shortages to labor shortages, like you said, I mean, I want to grow our business. Right now we're in dinner only. Um, we would like to obviously go to brunch and go to lunch, but that's going to take more people. Um, so, but at the same time, um, kind of to Aaron's point, we're, we're not just, I'm not just hiring people with a pulse. I'm hire, hiring people with a dedication to want to serve the public and to be part of a team and to be treated with respect and be valued um, as an employee. And I've had people say, oh, I've heard that before. And I don't know that I believe you. And you're right. I mean, that's the mindset that you're up against is, yeah, who's to say I'm not just telling you that. And next week you're going to get six day week, work week and 12 hours because I'm short staffed. No, I'd rather close a day than do that to, to my staff um, because I feel like that's not valuing their lives. And that's not what I've set out to do. So, yeah, I do see it as a problem. Um, but I, I feel that it is solvable if you just keep plugging away at it. And and more things that you do to kind of help them out, they tend to want to help you out as well. And, um, and, and help themselves, obviously, you know, like bringing people in to talk about finances. That's huge. That's huge. And that's something that nobody has ever really done. Not any restaurant I've ever worked in. Um, they, they've never done that to me, you know, for me, for me. And, um, and I think that that's an important factor. Like think about the future, think about where you're going in your life and, and where you want to be and let this be a stepping stone for that. Cause I really think that's what hospitality is in a lot of ways anyway. And that's why people don't really care as much about these hospitality jobs, because it is a stepping stone. It's a place for them to land while they're in college. It's a place for them to work and make some money while they're in medical school. Um, so if you can keep getting those quality people that that do want to do better for themselves, then I think you're you'll be successful. So you're trying to flip the script and say this is a career that you can actually thrive in, not just a, a way onto something else. Sure, but I know the reality is that it is a gateway onto something else. So I think that um, I want the retention as long as possible on some of these employees, but I love the fact that we have engineering students and medical students and, you know, people that are dedicated. They start with 
you know, being dedicated to what they're doing. Um, and, and I think that that is a mindset. So I think that there's a mindset that goes along with your hiring that if you get that kind of person that just wants to be there for a paycheck, then that's what you're going to get. If you want the kind of person that wants a home, that wants to settle somewhere, that wants to be a part of something bigger, then that's where you're going to get your quality employees that are going to stay with you and want to participate in what you're doing. Well, Carol Holiday is an operating partner at the Pinery Orlando. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, the pleasure is mine. Thank you for having me. We're also joined by Aaron Lamott. He's a Vice President of Supply Management uh, for North America with food at Sedex. So, Aaron, thank you as well. My pleasure. Thank you. And we're joined by Dr. Robertico Kroos, a Professor of Tourism Economics at Rosen College of Hospitality Management. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And Fires Cara, Orlando Weekly Restaurant Critic. Fires, thank you as well. My pleasure. Still to come, a conversation with Orlando area poet and US Army veteran Brian Turner, who reflects on his military service and how he connects with other veterans through writing. One of the main things I wanted to try and understand was, uh, okay, if I join because I have a long line of military tradition, what does that mean? Like, how did I learn? What did I learn when I was a kid that made me want to carry a weapon and go through a test of fire? You know, the old hero's narrative. Intersections back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. We're going to revisit a conversation with Orlando poet Brian Turner. Turner is a US Army veteran who served in Iraq and Bosnia-Herzegovina. I spoke to him in 2015 about his autobiography, My Life as a Foreign Country, and about how veterans respond to his writing. Turner began the conversation by reading a passage from his autobiography. There is something in the landscape itself that makes me circle back to it, whether it's jungle or the American West, the woodlands of France, the American South, deserts, rivers, beaches, all perceived in some ways as wild spaces where the architecture of civilization is not at play, the context of human society somehow absent or suspended, a space where the rules are upended, the theater of war, some call it, the space where war disentangles itself from the structure of human norms to thrash into the natural world, the idea of beauty, all that some might view as the closest this world can come to a kind of sacred perfection. This is part of the intoxication, part of the pathology of it all. This is part of what I was learning from early childhood on, that to journey into the wild spaces where profound questions are given a violent and inexorable response, that to travail through fire and return again, these are the experiences which determine the making of a man. To be a man I would need to walk into the thunder and hail of a world stripped of its reason, just as others of my family had done before me. And if I were strong enough, capable enough, I might one day return clothed in an unshakable silence. Back to the world, as they say. So what are you writing about here? Is this you deciding to join up? Is this why you right. trying to get to the heart of what made you enlist? Exactly. That's one of the main questions that led me into this meditation, into this book. Is Because uh, I've been asked for over a decade now, um, or just over a decade now, that very question oftentimes at poetry readings. And during the Q&A afterwards, people say, well, why did you join the Army? Which leads to that question, right? And and I had this sort of sketchbook answer, which I would say, oh, I come from a long line of military tradition in my family. But in the book, I, I need to – and part of the process of writing, I believe, is to ask that those next series of questions and open the doors that, that unfold behind that first door. 
So, I mean, what does that mean? Am I, am I implicating? If there were things that were difficult, am I sort of judging my family? Am I not? And basically, the, one of the main things I wanted to try to understand was, uh, okay, if I join because I have a long line of military tradition, what does that mean? Like, how did I learn? What did I learn when I was a kid that made me want to carry a weapon and go through a test of fire? You know, the old hero's narrative. Um, is it a pathology? Is it oh, something something to revere? Can it be all of those things all sort of mashed together? Do you feel like you know now why you joined? <laughs> no. <laughs> it was just to be honest, like a spoiler alert for anyone who reads the book. Uh, the book doesn't answer the question. I think um, I, I lean on um, – there's a writer who once said, to paraphrase uh, uh, Matthews, I believe, which is um, the job of the writer isn't to pose the solutions to the questions. The job of the writer is to ask the questions more clearly. And I think partly that isn't to be coy and to, to not sort of wrap things up for the reader. But part of the reason that I love reading myself when I, when I enter into someone's book is I want to be a part of the process. I want to engage in meaning. And uh, and I'm a, I'm bringing all of my own life experience to the books that I read, and I'm part of the construction and the architecture of the book itself. I'm part of the con- the construction of meaning. Um, so I don't I don't wrap things up easily in here. And also, there's some things that I think uh, that are part of a lifelong process. Joining the military on its surface is a simple answer to it, that question. Um, but in reality, underneath it, it's a, a lifelong thing I'm trying to learn about. What what kind of response do you get at readings from veterans or people who are active duty military? Uh, a wide range. I just read at uh, the Air Force Academy. There were 900 cadets in front of me, and it's, I think, my third time back there. I've been to all four service academies. I've been to, uh, was it Embry-Riddle over on the coast uh, a couple times now? Yeah, It's been great. Um, there's There's been a wide range. You know, even in my own platoon, uh, there's some people that we don't communicate with each other. And it's never been a spoken thing. There wasn't like a break off in communications or something. Just we never really got along or clicked when we were in uniform. They might read this and, and they might think, oh, this is interesting. Uh, I didn't really like Turner, but the book's good. Or it might be opposite. It might be like, oh, I never really thought much about you know, but wow, I wrote some drivel here. You know, <laughs> Who knows where they come from? Um, but for the most part, it's uh, military community and veterans, active and, and veterans uh, have been very welcoming and very supportive of my work. And um, I do my best to try to be a part of the community, help help those who might need help along the way, too. There are a lot of great projects across the country that I try to do my best to support and let others know about, for example. Is, mm. has, have there been moments, though, when maybe one of them will come up to you after reading and say, mm. well, you really nailed it, you know, I really I really get it? Yeah. You know, I've had um, – particularly, for example, um, well, from Iraq and Afghanistan, it's interesting to have – like I've never been to Afghanistan, and I've had um, – Men and women come up and say, wow, that really took me back to such and such city and, and in, in a different year because the different time zones, like I was there from 03 to 04 in Iraq. And that's so different from the time, say, 06 to 08, you know. And um, I, I never was in Fallujah, you know. I saw different types of, uh, you know, my experiences were different than others even at the same time we were there. So, I, but also if you go back to, say, the Vietnam War, I've had guys come up to me. Um, one guy, I'm, I'm pretty sure, was like a tunnel rat in, in Vietnam. What's that? They, well, there were a lot of tunnel systems, so some of the smaller guys were tasked with going down into the tunnels and trying to fight underground. This and, were, these were tunnels that were created by the Viet Cong? Yeah, yeah, in Vietnam, yeah. So these yeah. were American soldiers sent down into these tunnels? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. There's, um, there, there's a lot of literature on it, but uh, and sometimes you'll meet some, some, of, these, uh, some of these men 
that did that job. And, and I'm pretty sure this gentleman, I'm thinking of it, one of the readings, he came up and uh, he sort of he was smaller than me but uh, much wider, stockier. And he uh, sort of grabbed me around, gave me a hug, and then he wouldn't let go. It was this very intense hug, you know. He had a big beard and he was like sort of crushed into me and he wouldn't let go. And he was just like, welcome home, brother. Welcome home, bro-, you know. And um, it was very awkward for me. But at the same time, I remember thinking, at first I thought it was for me, like welcoming me home. Then I realized like he was welcoming himself back home. And he was trying to find a way, you know, to to uh, to reciprocate the way he never was welcome or didn't feel welcomed home. I, I don't, I'm not sure. You know, I'm reading into it, but it was very intense regardless, you know. And that happens sometimes. Yeah. Is that just a different eras, though? I mean, because some veterans from the Vietnam era will tell you they weren't treated very well when they came back to the United States. I wonder if veterans mm. now are treated with a little more respect. You know, it's hard for me to know because I was a kid at the time. So, I, I you know, it's anecdotal for me to, to – but I can say that um, previous generations from World War II until now, um, all across the board over the years, I've seen them – um, be like mentors and be helpful for men and women coming back home. They've been really, really outstanding and a lot of help. Uh, in fact, like when our, our plane landed in Maine on our way home, we had to clear customs. So we had to, and it was kind of funny because we're strapped down with knives and have these rifles in our hands and all that. But um, out in the lobby of the airport there, there were, um, it's like three in the morning, they do these shifts. There were veterans from World War II. You could tell by the caps they wore on their, their heads. And um, they had coffee there, and they didn't say anything about the mission or anything like that. They just said, welcome home. Hey, you want some coffee, some donuts, that kind of thing. And it was uh, just a great gesture of welcome to, to bring us back. Um, I think there's um, there's an old thing where the in the book I mentioned at one point where um, in Vietnam, for example, hundreds of years ago, when the, when the warriors would go off to battle, when they came back, the villagers would meet them outside of the village. And there was a ceremony that would ritually wash clean the blood from their bodies, right? And then they would take away their warrior names and give them back their name. And then all would return back to the village. And we don't really have a ritual like that. And I think there's something important about it. It's not just that the civilians reach out to find a way to help the veterans integrate. The key the thing in that story that's rarely thought about here is the villagers had to leave their lives too and meet outside and recognize that – in the washing the blood and all that, that there's a responsibility, there's a connection to war. And that was Brian Turner, poet and U.S. Army veteran, talking about his autobiography, My Life as a Foreign Country. That interview first aired on Intersection in November 2015. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen back to archived shows and interviews on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.